Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Mind to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur, consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we welcome Best Books Award winner and sales guru, Jeff Kozer, co-author of Selling to Zebras, which I happen to absolutely love this book, and met Jeff a number of years ago, and thought, God, I got to have Jeff on here, especially as people or have been struggling with sales during this uh, period. So, Jeff, welcome, and um, tell us a little bit about your professional background. Hi, Mark. It's uh, it's great to be talking to you again. Um, thanks for the intro. Um, sure, a little bit about myself. Um, I was an executive at an ERP software company called Bon USA, and it really was my growth period. I was the fifth person hired there, and we had competition like SAP and Oracle, for example, on virtually every deal that we pursued. And when I left, uh, five years later, um, we had grown it into 6,000 people and almost three quarters of a billion in annual revenues. And we had had a successful IPO, and then market cap when I left was 12 billion for that company. So it, it was quite a ride, it was a lot of fun, and I learned a lot. Excellent. So uh, why did you write this book and why did you give it this title? So we always pursued zebras at Bonn. That's what we called perfect prospects. And we had to figure out what were perfect prospects for us or we were going to die because our competition was a large household name mentioned before. And we knew that, that it had to be something that was easy to spot, pun intended. <laughs> you had to know... Uh, when you really had one, or we weren't going to be able to survive. So we called it Zebras at that time. So the book was called Selling to Zebras to be uh, indicative of what we did, but also a little provocative and, and thought-provoking. One of the guests today asked uh, at our last session to always ask every author, what are the three things you would like the readers to walk away with after reading this book? That's that's a really good question. You're a good question asker, Mark. Um, so I would say first thing is that sales has changed. Um, it, it's not a numbers game anymore. It's it's not just about activity. If all you do is activity, you'll probably fail. Uh, the second thing is that professional sellers who know how to sell the way that we prescribe are even more valuable today than ever before. And the third thing is that the way that you actually sell, when you when you only sell to clients who will get exceptional value and you start to gain that reputation, that the way you sell itself can become part of your differentiation from the competition. So talk about the zebra model. Well, um, not surprisingly, it starts with zebras. <laughs> um, and they're, those are prospects that fit. And what I mean by that is they, the demographics where you do well the culture where you do well, the values line with your values and your business's values, the business issues that they have, um, the financial gain that they need from your solution, the technology, and they also fit from a services perspective. And when you when you distill it down, there's actually seven things that go into what a zebra is. But but that's that's where we begin, and. And that's really where the rest of the system flows from is that very beginning. Excellent. And I've, I try to use it myself for my own ventures and for my clients. Uh, you write about in the book about developing a discipline of not chasing every potential lead. How do you do that without missing a potential great opportunity? That's a good question. That's one that's always on salespeople's minds. That's always on business owners' minds. Um so the, the zebra philosophy itself is to identify the characteristics that, that define where you'd win nine out of the 10 deals that you'd pursue. So, it's, so really, it's when you chase outliers, it's when you chase non-zebras that, that, that it actually costs you business. 
because it takes time to not only close those, but it takes more time to service non-zebras. And the time it takes you to do that, you'll lose three to five zebras that you could have closed, which are more profitable, they're easier to install, they're easier to, to retain, and you're wasting the one resource you can't ever get back, which is time if you sell non-zebras. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think we often even chase uh, clients that when you start dealing with them, you realize, God, this would be a nightmare client to deal with. And you've uh, lost time on getting some really better clients that you're a better match to. Most people listening to this podcast aren't salespeople. Many are frightened by the prospect of doing sales. That's a necessary evil. We got to feed ourselves. How can those people overcome their fear and be successful at sales? Another good question. So I would say most people aren't really afraid of sales. Um, they're afraid of their mental image of what it takes to actually be a professional salesperson. Sales is actually very enjoyable when you figure out which B2B companies, or for that matter, which B2C companies, or which consumers have the problem you solve and would gain where the financial gain would actually be compelling. And when you sell this way, it feels good to the buyer and to the seller. And our process creates a buyer's journey, not a sales journey, not a sales cycle. And it gives the buyer the ability to opt in or opt out based on the agreed upon financial gain of your solution. And that's, that's what buyers prefer. So it, it feels good to both parties. What's the profile that we're looking for as a zebra? I mean, how do you identify the right folks? What's the formula look like? So I mentioned there's, there's seven attributes. So the first one is company fit. The second is operational fit. Third, and these are in the order of importance. The third is power or who's the decision maker profile where you would normally succeed. Fourth is funding. Fifth is value or ROI or total cost of ownership. Sixth is technology and seventh is service. And then for each attribute, what you do is you describe where you fit really well and where you don't fit at all. And then you measure each prospect based on that fit and where they are in the buying journey. And a poor fit for each one of those attributes. So you score each one of those attributes from zero to four. And a poor fit would be a zero or a one. And when you select a zero or one, the score is red. So we actually have software that helps you. So that score is red and red is bad as you'd, as you'd expect. A two is yellow. It's sort of uh, middle of the road, it's caution. And a three and a four are green. So the first time you score a prospect is when you, is when you know enough about them to score those first two attributes, company and operations. And those first two should be green. And if they're not, you should find a different prospect. And this discipline allows the entire organization to focus on companies where the organizational profile and where the company and the organizational profile is so good that you're aligning all the resources in the company around perfect fit prospects. Have you been using a lot of statistics? I mean, like the biggest companies like Salesforce and so forth are very relying on data. How much do you rely on data? We completely rely on data and we use, we use machine learning and, and uh, AI to help us do that. But what if you're a, a, a small or startup company? How do you how do you make that work? Well, when you're a startup, if you if you have customers, you can build your zebra because those are the best indication that you have something that somebody wants. And until somebody pays for it, you don't really know that. But if you don't have customers yet, you can also start by developing your zebra based on what you believe that profile is and then proving it over time and adjusting because the zebra isn't a static thing. So for example, when we were at Bond, we used to readjust the profile every six months. Uh, for one thing, we were growing rapidly. Uh, for another, the, 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 the product was getting better because we, we focused on making the capabilities of the solution better align with our zebras. So we were, we were better able to align our R&D resources to scale our growth as well. 
Um, one of the questions we have here is, uh, what's one blind spot that had a huge impact with your business, both pre, pre-COVID and post-COVID? I would say that the the blind spot was that what we re- what we really needed to start doing was positioning ourselves as a remote selling platform. Now you can do this face to face because you actually sell from our software, and it, it becomes part of the presentation, but Remote selling is different because, um, and and many believe we're never going to go back to the way it was today where 89% of B2B deals, you talk about data, 89% of B2B deals involved a face-to-face interaction, buyer and seller. And many believe we're never going to go back to those statistics. And my biggest realization was that this platform can actually make sellers more effective remotely, like we're communicating today, than even a face-to-face interaction. I should follow up on this, and that is, how do you think COVID has changed for the long-term? And do you think it's long-term? Is it short-term? Because I always kind of felt with sales that, you know, all things being equal, when you're buying a product, you tend to buy from people you like, whether it's a hard product or services. Uh, so what's your take on that? And what, how is COVID changing it? And will it have changed it for the long-term? People still do buy from people they like, but I think it's harder to read people um, when you're selling remotely uh, via Zoom or some other type of, of methodology because you don't get to 80, they say 80% of communications is nonverbal and therefore you don't get to read the room and salespeople are classically really good at, at reading the room. So what you have to do is you have to have tools that help you present something that is compelling that do give you more opportunities that to interact with the people that you're that you're communicating with. I have to tell you, I think Zoom has been great. I have a new venture called uh, Funding Organizer. It's a common app to apply for commercial loans. And it's allowed me to really um, develop relationships with people online by even just talking to them about general things like family and, and and sports and so forth before you dive in, where I was really concerned that it would be uh, really, really difficult to get sales because you're used to that human interaction by being in person. So if you have to be reliant on something like Zoom or go to meeting, what, what's your advice for people to make the most of that? Well, I, I think that there's, there's three things that recent surveys point out um, that buyers value most. That speed, transparency, and expertise. So speed, um, you know, what what we have done to address that is, is we've turned our platform into a live sales platform. It's metrics driven. It has case studies, which is proof. So it's it's proof of what your claims are. And the presentations are all built in. So now you know how that the course of that meeting is going to go. Um, the second thing that I mentioned is transparency. Um, so you, you have to teach reps to be transparent with the results that are possible. You have to teach them to capture the value of the solution versus talking about the features and the functions of their product, which nobody wants to talk about. People, buyers don't care about your features and functions. And, and you have to start with zebras. So you have to know the business problem you solve and you have to make sure that that the person that you're that you're pursuing has that business problem. You have to have evidence of that. And then the third thing is expertise that I mentioned, and that's when you know how to verify the financial impact of your solution, and you can present that back to the person we call power, which is the decision maker. And that's that expertise, that type of expertise creates credibility, and uh, your deals they. You know, when you score them, <laughs> we didn't talk about how you you score the total deal as well. So when each of these seven attributes actually adds up into a color as well, and the total can add up into a red deal, a yellow deal, or a green deal. And when you sell this way, more of your deals turn green, and those are the ones that will close. Let me elaborate more on that. So when you first score a prospect, we want those first two attributes to be green. For, we, we talked about that before. 
And that's what tells you you've got a prospect where it's really worth it to dig in to figure out who really is power. Who, and our definition of power is simple. It's the person that can buy from you even if they don't have a budget. That's because they do own budgets and they can move dollars around if you, if you present compelling financial gain. So it takes work to get there, though. You have to earn it. You, you, you can't just request it. You have to earn it. So once you get there, we have a prescribed way to, to communicate in that, in that first meeting. It's you lead with those business issues and you lead with the financial gain. And then you show them your customer proof. We haven't really talked about that just yet, but your customer proof comes from a customer analysis calls that you do within your customer base so that the stories the salespeople tell are really customer stories, not their stories. And they're backed up with the voice of the customer versus the voice of the salesperson. And, and you create a go, no go decision for, for power, which basically says, is this business problem I've uncovered, is, is it important to you? For example, would you, would you want to deploy resources to solve it this year if you knew there really was a solution for solving it? So that means it's urgent if they say yes. And is this financial gain that I've laid out, is it enough for you to buy and or make a change from what you're doing now? And that, that then creates that go, no-go decision. And if that if power says yes, then you ask them to sponsor you. They probably won't be the right person. They'll probably have other people, especially if it's a business and it's a, a substantial deal, that there'll be stakeholders who are better equipped to answer detailed questions around verifying whether or not this financial gain is really possible for them. So you ask to be introduced to their stakeholders. And that is that go, no go decision. Will they make that? And then will they engage with you to verify? And we know from statistics that if they say yes to verification, you'll close 50% of those deals. And I'll give you one more statistic. Well, to explain verification, what does that, what do you mean by that? So our, our I hate to keep talking about our software because um, I, I, I don't like that when people do that with me because I'm not trying to, to, to sell that, that. But the concept is, you have, you have financial claims that you're gonna make. And what you do is you show them where those came from and you show them the formula that you used to determine what you could do for them. And you verify that your assumptions about them are right, that, that caused you to say that this is how much value I can create for you. And you usually have several of those. Some clients have three or four, some clients have had as many as a dozen. And as you saw in our book, it was a it was a supply chain company example, and they had you know we call those value drivers, and there were many of those. And you verify the again your assumptions, and you verify the value that's possible by showing them how your solution addresses those problems and solves it. And once you've done that, you've gained their verification and their sponsorship. And the goal is to go back to power with those stakeholders with you and make a mutual presentation to power about what's possible with your solution. I, I have to say, I, I always thought of, and I think this, there's a lot of folks that fit into power, right? Like there's the check writer who ultimately has to uh, approve this and sign off, but there's the influencer who's telling people, you know, you really could utilize this product or service. And then there's the actual person who needs the service and tells the check writer, I absolutely need this to do my job better, or we need to bring this person in. So is it like a, a group of people that are power, or is it just one person? That's another, again, really good question. You have an inquisitive mind, which makes you a good question asker. So there's, the, there, there's a long answer, but I'll give you the short answer. There's generally only one person who's power. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to sell the person that is the user buyer, like you described. There's always, if it's a technical solution, there's also usually a technical buyer that might be IT or it might be an engineer. Um, and there might be people who are fans of yours, but those are generally called coaches. Those are all constituencies that most salespeople are actually pretty good at selling. 
by the way. So those don't go away. But where most salespeople fall short is they don't really know the language of power. And we give them the ability to start there so that they're endorsed so that all those sales efforts that they're going to do with the user buyer, the, the technical buyer, et cetera, are actually leading up to the probability of something that will result in a sale. You know, so much of uh, business has become commoditized. You know, as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, rarely do I actually meet salespeople um, because, you know, if you're buying a, a laptop, you're typically just going online and reading reviews and comparing things. So it takes it out of the hands because before you would go into a computer store or a Best Buy and somebody would sell you that computer, at least answer your questions. So you're not doing that anymore. And the only time that you see occasionally some kind of salesperson in most consumer products is if they're giving a taste test at a supermarket or whatever. <laughs> but essentially, you're always now, and I wonder how this affects sales, now you're reading Yelp reviews and other reviews, that's and that's swaying whether you buy a product or service or not. And so you're not meeting them because even like uh, I use GoDaddy for a lot of stuff and I use Constant Contact. And hmm. so I, before I bought those things, I would look at their reviews and if there was a high number of good reviews, but I would read the worst reviews. And if the yeah, and if I could get over the worst reviews, then I then I bought them. So how is that affecting sales? Profoundly. So there's a recent in fact, uh, it's only a couple of weeks old report by Gartner. The um, If you're in technology, everybody knows who Gartner is. Gartner, Forrester, they're analysts of technology solutions. Yeah. And they do a lot of research. And what they say is that 87% of the time that an executive spends determining what they're going to approve. So power person in a position of power, 87% of the time they spend on a decision is done without a salesperson, which means a salesperson, if it's, if it's compelling that a salesperson get involved, they only have 13% of power's time to, con to figure out that your solution is the right one. And if they, let's say that they allow three salespeople an audience, that means that you end up with less than 5% of power's time. So what you present has to be where you belong. It has to be compelling. And it has to be compellingly different than what your competition is presenting. And that's that's what we teach people, salespeople to do. Um, one of the questions we have here is, how does this approach different from fundraising for a new venture? Have you worked with people raising capital? Uh, not only have I... If I work with people, I've been to Australia and New Zealand to help clients raise capital. Uh, so all the way from here to there, um, it's it's not too different because what what investors want to know is that you've identified where your solution, what your sweet spot is. They they will often ask, what's the size of your market? What what makes it compelling and why you versus the competition? And this answers those questions. Yeah, I think you anybody who watches enough Shark Tank, and of course I run the Angel Venture Fair, and I say to entrepreneurs all the time, all you have to do is watch Shark Tank, and you really get a, uh, a, exactly what the one knows. They all say, what's the problem you're solving? Even if it's a consumer product, I watched a rerun before I came on with you about uh, cookies. And, the, and they were saying, well, my God, there's so many competitors. What's the problem that you're solving here? Is it that it's less calories, there's less sugar? Tell me what that is, because what, what's the compelling reason somebody would actually want to buy just cookies, right? It's, it's not enough to be delicious. Now people are, are even breaking it down further. And I think that's the, that's the uh, services across the board, right? It's. In, there's there's no doubt about it and there's a there's a recent book that um it's a newer book that i read um by april dunford mark um it's called absolutely awesome and what she teaches is that you have to figure out your positioning really tightly so it's it's like she's saying you have to figure out your zebra really tightly 
and you have to put yourself in the box that you want to be in because if you don't prospects are going to put you into a box and it'll be the box that most closely aligns with what they understand your communication is, is telling them. And then they are automatically assume they know what, what capabilities you have, who your competitors are. So if you don't do that really crisp, crisply and clearly, and you end up in the wrong box, you will waste a lot of sales and marketing effort. Yeah. I, I have to say, we see a lot of entrepreneurs who do not know, like they get so enamored with their product that they don't know the competition well enough to show the true differentiator. And, and then they ask for too much as well uh, when, they're, when they're trying to raise capital. One of the questions here is, any tips for when you're not the sole reason for a customer using your service or product? So actually, power almost always falls into that definition. Power is almost, is almost never the person who will be the user buyer of your solution. And that's why it's so important when you, when you start to sell this way, to go to your existing customers and reestablish that relationship with power and find out why did power sign off or why did power sign? Why did power initially authorize them to look for a solution to solve this problem? Knowing that is really critical to being able to penetrate at power in, in your prospect organization or in the prospects that you pursue. Because again, most companies know how to relate well to the person who actually uses the solution, the user buyer, but they don't know how to relate to the person that, that's usually, it's usually on average two levels above that person where power resides, and they don't know how to relate there. They don't know why they bought or why they considered buying. So let me uh, make sure we nail this person's question down. So they wrote some additional information here. For example, we are a lender and are essentially a middleman between a reseller and a company buying their product. How much influence do we or can we have in this scenario? And what if the seller is just not a motivated seller? Yeah, so there, when you have a two-step distribution or you have a two-step sales model, which is what they're describing here, you have to provide those tools that help the person who is who's who does have that relationship with the customer sell. And they're gonna sell the solution that's the easiest to sell. So if they offer competing solutions, if you provide better tools that help them become more proficient, so uh, that's what they'll do because they're smart. They're, they're, they're entrepreneurs in their own right. So for example, when we were at Bonn, when we didn't do this at the beginning, but later on, a few years in, we started developing an alternative sales channel for that where they were we were going downstream to smaller customers. So independent resellers. In fact, we do that with our solution. We have partners who install our solution. So you have to teach them. You have to give them the tools. You have to teach them. You have to make sure they're proficient. And you have to make sure it's worth their while to become proficient. And if you can say to them things like, I can help you close 90% of the deals that turn green. They're going to listen to that. And if you have something to back that up, for example, that becomes easier for them to sell more compelling and it helps them grow their business. So they'll listen to you and many of them will execute on that. I think some businesses are very much black and white, you know, in the money management area, if your money manager is in the top 25% quartile, it sells itself. But if your um, money manager is in the bottom 25% quartile, the greatest salesperson in the world is not going to go and sell that product to anybody because, the, because it's that black and white. And this isn't, a, this isn't a solution for the bottom 25%. Um, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't help them. <laughs> we would suggest they get in a different profession. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, what what are the biggest mistakes new people to selling products and services make? They try to sell their products and services. That's exactly what they try to do. They 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 don't identify why an executive or why power would buy. They they don't understand the mind of power. They they think that their solution. Many entrepreneurs think that their solution should sell itself. That it that the, the thing that it makes it compelling is so obvious because it's so obvious to them and it rarely is. We see that with entrepreneurs all the time when they're looking to raise capital. How, how do you define sales versus marketing? Because often 
people will say, oh, I'm a marketer, but they're not really marketing, they're in sales. How do you define the two? Marketing really is, it's, they, they are the ones that attract the companies that are zebras. So the case studies that are there, the, the website has to align, um, the, um, the messaging that, that you use in, if you use some type of automated email, like account-based or, or um, marketing automation, that, that message has to completely align. Um, and this, so they have to make sure, um, and usually marketing is responsible for lead generation and business development is often part of lead generation. So they have to make sure that the lead generators are equipped with the same type of messaging that the salespeople are going to put forth when they do get that opportunity to get in front of power. And, and marketing is classically the ones that work with us to make sure that that messaging is really tight and is value-based so that when the salesperson gets part of that 13% of the time, the power will actually spend on, on making a decision. They do it in a, in a very tight, scalable way. Uh, you quote a stat that 70% of the prospects never buy. So were they mislabeled? So yes, yes, in a way. So 70% of the forecast that's sitting in everybody's pipeline never buys from anybody. We call that non-decision, that they fall into that category where they stay forever. So when you do zebra scoring, there's, as we mentioned, the total score will, will, will also turn into a color. And red deals, yellow deals, and green deals indicate different things. Red are almost always glaringly obvious to everybody. This is just not a good prospect for us. But it's the yellow deals that sit in the forecast and kill all businesses, and they never turn green. Those are the non-decision deals. They're, they're non-zebras, and they, they stay there forever because most of the time, they won't agree to verify the value of your solution and or you just can't get to power. You can't get to the decision maker. And time kills all all businesses, all deals and all businesses. And it's those are the deals that kill businesses. Remote working remotely, you talked about this a little bit er, earlier, but um, you mentioned about how McKinsey says that 98% of B2B sales historically has required face-to-face -face meetings and since 80% of communication is now verbal. How do companies actually make this pivot work and who's been doing it well? So that's that's um, the ones that are doing it well have provided their salespeople with those that that speed, transparency, and expertise in making sure that the salespeople are able to execute on those three things. Because what they want is clients want proof. If if you remember Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm, right? Not the fatter part of the bell-shaped curve. So the first two categories, the innovators and the early adopters, those guys make up, I forget what it is, I think it's 13 or 16% of all the buyers. But that fatter part of the bell-shaped curve, the early adopters, or the, the early majority rather, and the late majority, they want proof. They want metrics-based case study proof of the value that you can create. So that's why this is so compelling. And you've got less time in front of them because it, it's it's a Zoom meeting. They're going to start. They're going to end on time. Transparency has to do with with results. So you have to teach those salespeople how your their solution creates the results, so that they talk about solution, business problem, and results versus uh, features, functions, and their product. And then next is expertise. So when you, when you show up and you know the financial value that your solution can create and you can prove it, you have an expertise that gains credibility beyond what that buyer is usually used to. And it, it, frankly, it's refreshing for them. And that's what creates sales execution when it's, when it's in a remote sale. You mentioned here, and, I, and maybe I've misread this, uh, you, uh, why does it take a hundred prospects to get one client? Why the low ratio? Yeah, so that is that is a, a misread. Um, what um what we're really saying is that's that's sort of the old thinking, 
that's sort of the 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 um, the mentality that it, that sales is still a numbers game, which, which it's not. So what we're really saying is old school thinkers say, well, you've got to do a hundred phone calls and that'll lead to 10 presentations and that'll lead to five proposals and that'll lead to one sale. That's, that's, I'm not saying activity isn't important, but it's the right activity is, is what's important because today you can do all that activity and end up selling zero. That's the problem. You know, I think it's always been this way. I once ran a multimedia company and I asked the salespeople who our target market was, and they go, anybody with a check? And <laughs> I'd like to write a check. So I actually put the whole sales team, six people in the car, and I drove to the mall and I said, okay, is this a client for us? No, no, 200 stores. I drove into the, into the, uh, uh, into the commercial park where all the other companies were which of these companies is a client of ours or their industry? None. So I said, so clearly right now, all we've been working with is pharmaceutical and financial service companies. So it's clear who our target is. This is where we build our best case. That's who we should spend all our time on. So anything marketing beyond those folks uh, isn't making a lot of sense for us. And we ended up you know, focused on that and selling the company for a good chunk of money. That's, that's exactly where everybody should start is, is looking at their existing customers if they have them and figuring out that that's why when you build your zebra, you don't just let sales teams do it either. You, what you do is you create a cross-functional team that includes the executive, it includes finance, it includes product, it includes marketing so that you get a view of what makes an ideal customer an ideal customer from all those perspectives. I think that's smart, especially finance, where they're telling exactly. you, hey, there's no margins here on this kind of client. I one time had a EMI was a client of this multimedia company, and the owner loved it because it was a big record company. I said, we lose money on every deal we do with EMI. <laughs> I'm firing them as a client. I, I want more, more work, uh, more Mercs and other big pharma companies. That's what I'm interested in, people who would really pay us for what we're doing here. Um, Jeff, can... Uh, can one can one have a variety of zebras for a particular product solution as long as the as the point of the difference is very well defined? So usually each solution has one zebra, but you can have multiple zebras if you have multiple different solutions, and they can be different by vertical also. They can be different for different regions of the world as well. But 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 you there is an art to making sure that you don't get too complex with it because you have to maintain those as well once you create them. What's the best way to negotiate with people with power? How can you do the negotiation well without giving them even more power? So that's why selling this way is 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 so compelling because when you when you work with their people, their stakeholders, the people they trust, and you work through your assumptions and they agree to them and you show them other customer proof that you've accomplished what you say you can accomplish and you and you get their agreement through now showing your product whether it's something you demonstrate or it's your engineering expertise that you can, I'll give you an example so one of our clients um, they make acoustic materials um, noise dampening vibration dampening aesthetically pleasing interiors for large trucks. So Peterbilt, for example, is, is a client of theirs. They can, they do, they have a lab and they do specifications of these different materials and they can determine in a package that would go into a Peterbilt truck, for example, which pieces to spend money on because they actually accomplish the goal, which, which are in the line of sight. So they have to be aesthetically pleasing, which ones don't, um, have any thermal value, don't, don't create any noise reduction, don't create any uh, vibrational reduction. Therefore, they can tell them, don't spend a lot of money in this particular spot. Put your money here, here, and here. So when you, when you sell that way, and then you say, I built a business case with your stakeholders, Power, I worked with your, your sound engineers, your acoustics engineers, and we, we formulated this solution together. And by the way, here's the business case. And some, sometimes they can even collapse SKUs. So they're now they're making that product easier to make, easier to install. So the total cost of ownership goes down. So when you present that back to the to the to power and you ask power then to introduce you to procurement, because think about Peterbilt, 
they're owned by Packard. Packard's got procurement people who are really well trained. You know, they know how to try to grind you down. Well, when you present this business case in the way that you are, you have the tools to maintain your price because your total cost of ownership is less than even somebody who might offer a lower price. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect, perfect. Uh, given that COVID's changed the world, what's your criteria now for screening and for selecting salespeople? So we have a scoring system for that. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And it has seven attributes and they turn red, yellow, and green. Seriously, we do. And, and uh, I'll send that to you and you can post that and you can share that. But the questions we ask are, are not the questions, you know, you have to read the resume, you have to have done your filtering. But when you have, the thing I like to ask them, I'll give you two examples. Tell me how you stay a student of sales. How do you stay up on your profession? That's a good question. And they'll almost always talk to me about a book that I've usually read. Um, so I'll ask them some questions to make sure they really have. So now you're getting at a lot of things. Did they really get it? Did, are they honest? Did they really read it? Or they'll give me a tip on a book I haven't read, which is, that's a win-win right there too. Um, and then I'll ask them, I'll say, if, if, if they're going to go into a complex sales position, I'll ask them to explain something complex to me so that I would understand it. And then and they'll say, well, what do you mean? I say, anything you want. And you, you, you just you just learn so much. So there's seven questions that are non-conventional. And then you score each one of those, zero to four. And if the totals add up to red score, you know, you run, not walk away. If it's yellow, you usually you don't do it unless you're really looking for a project and you think the person could be successful. And green is you hire them. What's a couple of the unconventional questions? Just a couple of them. I also like to ask, what's the last prospect you walked away from and why? Interesting. Yeah. Now they have to tell me, you know, maybe they'll say, well, I never do. I, you know, I figure if I put enough time and effort into it, I can sell everybody. Well, that's, that's an answer. That's one of those activity management type people that, it's a little bit like arguing about religion and politics. You just don't have enough time to change their mind. And so that brings me to this question. How do you get salespeople see the difference between activity and productivity? Well, good salespeople, they know the difference. And um, I almost always have, when we do a launch of what we do, a salesperson will come up to me invariably and they'll usually say two things. They'll say, one, before I came to this training, I didn't think I was going to, or before I came to this launch, I didn't think I was going to get anything out of it because I've been through strategic selling, solution selling, power-based selling, all these things. And they said, so you surprised me. And then they say, and this is the way I've always done it, but I had never had tools or a way to express it. So they tend to know the difference. And salespeople, they're, they're amazing. I mean, look at CRM. You, you can't get salespeople to put data in a system if it doesn't help them sell. You can't even beat them enough to get them to do it because they intuitively know what helps them sell. And if you present them with something that helps them sell, they will just do it. That's what we found. And if you don't slow them down and you help them, they will do it. And they, they intuitively know the difference, Mark. What CRM systems do you recommend now that you mentioned that? So if you're really if you're just starting out, I really like HubSpot because they have a free version and a paid version, and then they've got marketing automation that goes with it. It's simple to use. Um, if you're a Microsoft shop, if 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 you're a little bigger company and you've bought Microsoft's suite of 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 software, usually uh, Dynamics is part of that suite, and it's a very capable solution. And I would use it because it comes with it. And if you're more sophisticated or if you plan to build other tools on top of a platform, Salesforce, excuse me, is an excellent platform for doing that. Um, but today it's it's more of a larger company solution. And, and then, you know, we have a lot of software clients that use Salesforce, but usually um, today they start out with something a little less sophisticated and work up to Salesforce. And they don't go to Salesforce now unless they're ready to put like billing on top of that or some other part of their 
their solution, their back office solution on top of it. Understood. Here's another question. How to create a buy-in with a customer segment that has trust issues due to a variety of reasons? In other words, how to stand out with an authentic message? How do you do that? Authenticity comes from your customers. Your message has to come. You sell through your customers, not to them. You sell through them. Your customers, if you do a good job for them, they will share why they bought. They will share why they're continuing to buy. And it's it's even, it's more compelling today than ever before because there's almost, the economy has changed. Almost every solution, there's a as a service option. So software as a service, for example, cars as a service, um, whatever it is. So it's easier to sell, but it's easier for them to turn that off and go to the competitor as well. So if so, you have to you have to bring proof, and then you have to design your proposal. This is something we haven't yet talked about. You have to design your proposal so that you can look that prospect in the eye and say, "We verified this with your stakeholders, the people you trust, and if they have trust issues, this is where you build that proposal up." If there's any gaps in those people's ability to do what you're proposing, you've got to fill that gap. So it might be training, it might be reinforcement of other types. So you can look power in the eye and say, I've got everything I need here to help you achieve this business case. And by the way, our culture is to stick around till you do. So I know and we know as a company that we're not done until the promises that you're going to make to your company to get this approved are actually achieved. I agree with you about the customer selling you because I know even for this podcast, uh, we're now up to 35 countries and everybody who seems to be joining is because somebody here is listening and telling other people about it and, and, it, and it ends up selling itself because I'm not spending any a, a, a penny on marketing, but it, it's been driven all, all on its own. And if the people like the product that they're getting, they tell other people about it just and just as quickly they tell people if they don't like something as well, right? They they do. And if you have and they like what you're doing because you do have that inquisitive mind. You you it's been on display since we've started here. Now, what what's the difference between thank you, by the way, what is the difference between buying and selling cycle you write about? So a a, a sales cycle is where you sort of set it up the way you want it. You know, you you want to go present your capabilities. That's that feature function discussion. A lot of times salespeople will hit a prospect with so many things they do. It's almost like the prospect has to decide how to buy from you versus a, a buying cycle. You, you, you actually satisfy, they come to a realization that they have a problem and they're investigating and they want, they want to learn. That's where marketing comes in. Marketing is there teaching them providing education, possibly providing uh, thought-provoking ideas for solving those problems. The salespeople have to do their homework. So they have to do research on the account. They have to identify business issues that, that they've found that the prospect has. That's what's going to help them get the meeting with power to begin with. And you use the language that you found in the research. So you use their language. And then you have to come with, a, with something that, that says, we teach, you have to financially quantify it. So that you have to be able to let power know what's the financial value of allowing you to work with their people. Is it compelling enough to disrupt their business? Because their stakeholders are busy. They're the people they trust to evaluate from your solution. There's a cost to that. It's their time. So it has to be compelling enough, and you have to give you have to give that buyer a way to opt in or opt out. That's that go no go decision we talked about earlier. So power might say, you know what, this isn't compelling enough, or there's not enough. I don't think there's enough difference between what we do today to solve the problem and what you're offering. It's that's another way of selling. It's not. It's saying it's not compelling. I've had power say to me, it's not a priority this year, but it is on our list in January. That's actually a really good answer because now you're not gonna waste your time for the balance of this year 
and you know when to contact them back, assuming you really were at power. Right. Yeah, of course. And that they're sincere about what they've just told you and not just trying to get you off the phone or, or get you to stop writing to them. I always wondered how long or short an introductory email should be and how many emails should you send before a follow-up with a call, along with how long you should wait before making another call. So the first answer to the first question is short. <laughs> Think about the emails you're willing to read. And they have to have a compelling subject line. And and I would recommend we teach never send an email without also uh, leaving a voicemail, which is what you're going to end up doing. You're not going to talk live to someone. Uh, when they see it's someone they don't know calling in, they're going to let it roll to, to voicemail, even if they're there. And you're really just saying, hey, please read this email that I that I sent you. You're acknowledging they won't read it unless you say, this is why you might want to read it. And then you have to realize that that, that email, even if you do that, might be standing between them and spending time doing what they want to do that they enjoy in life at the end of the day, because they get tons of email. You know, marketing automation has inundated us all with sometimes really good, compelling messaging. So even good, compelling messaging, we've become inoculated against it. So if you don't reach out in a way that is has a great subject line, you did your homework, and then followed up with a voicemail, they're probably not going to read that email. And, and HubSpot, by the way, they did their latest research. How many touches do you think it takes to an executive before the, they, they engage with you? How many touches do you think it takes? I'm guessing seven to 10. Yeah, it's now 20. Wow. That's what HubSpot says. And, and most salespeople give up after four. Wow. Uh, so that brings me to about how do you evaluate losses? Like when you don't get a sale, how do you go and evaluate it and learn from it? Well, if, it's, if it was a green deal, if you're using Zebrafy's system, if it's a green deal, those are really valuable to pull apart to figure out why, why you lost it. Um, because there's always learnings there. Um, a lot of times it might be that you really weren't at power. You, you assumed you were. And then you'd, when you're not at power, the score can go from green to red because you can't effectively answer the funding question, the value question, the technology or the service question, because those are power level issues that power has to decide that, you that you're worth the funding, that your value is compelling enough, that your technology really makes a difference relative to the price difference between you and the competitor, for example, and that your service that's required is something they're willing to pay for. I wonder this, are there time, and, and if there's statistics that back this up, are there times and days of the week that are better to send emails and make phone calls? There are. So Tuesdays and Thursdays are the best days. Early mornings, later afternoon are the best times to, to do emails and, 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 uh, and phone calls. I, I have to say I found uh, Sunday mornings, uh, and if I am writing the CEOs, they're typically responsive because there's nobody um, reading their email for them. So I get good responses if I write to people on Sunday mornings. If you have a LinkedIn connection, that can be a very effective way to communicate. I, I agree with that. And I often respond to them on a Sunday morning, like you just said, if it's, but they have to have opted in to connect to you to do that. And usually you have to earn that. Yeah, no, somewhere. no question about it. You mentioned conducting surveys of your clients. How many questions and what type of questions do you usually ask? So it depends on the customer of ours. Um, and we, because we do do a lot of, we call it voice of the customer work. Um, there's usually, I, I prepare usually about 10 or 12 questions. And I, I usually know or have a good idea what their answer should be or what I want it to be because I, I do my homework. First, we develop a zebra. So we learn a lot about where a company, what problems they solve, what value they think they create who their customers are. 
and then we can formulate those questions. And um, when you know what the answer should be, you can guide them oftentimes to the answer. And sometimes even the math that they should use to figure out the value that, that uh, your client or if it's the company doing the calling is actually creating for them. You mentioned uh, prospect size, industry, vertical, and culture, among other attributes. But I was wondering, where does culture fit in? So culture is really important. So we we were talking before about this client that uh, sells to Peterbilt. Um, maybe not everybody knows this, but Peterbilt is, I mean, they make fabulous 18 trucks that that pull 18 wheelers. You know, they're, they're the, the cab. They're the power source for pulling large 53-foot cabs, um, tractor trailers. And they are the top of the top line. They, they, uh, they have a premier price um, and the, the fit, the finish, the sound, the quality. When somebody gets out of their you know, high-end F-150 and they jump into a Peterbilt, they expect the appointments to be as good, if not better. Well, when this client of ours has um, an expensive go-to-market because they have a lab that can do the testing of these materials. They can formulate something that exactly is built for purpose. That's expensive. So the lower end of their competition, the, the, whoever sells the least cost uh, tra tractor trailer is probably not, well, they know they're not a good prospect for them because they're not going to pay that price point difference because their customers are not willing to pay that premium price to get that. So that's a cultural thing. And that type of culture permeates every decision that they make in that organization. It, it's, it's price, it's quality, it's, it's, it's total cost of ownership. They, they look at things, Caterpillar, when I spoke to Caterpillar, they look at things like, what's the packaging like? What's the efficiency of being able to get it to the production line? What's the efficiency of being able to actually put it into the uh, mining equipment or the, the whatever it is they're manufacturing. So those types of customers understand a total cost of ownership conversation, whereas the low end of the market for this customer of ours, they don't even understand that conversation. That's a cultural thing. So here's my last question, 60, sec 60 seconds or less. And that is, how do you know you are competing against, how do you know you are evaluating the right competitor. And the reason I ask is I once did work for a big insurance company. And when I surveyed their customers and asked them who were they uh, also considering, my client, big insurance company, got it wrong 90% of the time. They totally misread who their competitor was for certain products. So how do you make sure that you're not misreading who your competitor is? and getting the right information to when you're having that conversation with clients that you can talk to them about even the competitor and why you're better. You ask your customers. That's what I did. Yeah. yeah that's what you do. And, and sometimes the, it'll be, you'll go up against the wrong competition because you're positioning yourself wrong and they put you in that box. We just mentioned it's a different box than you think you should be in, but you've, you've put yourself in that box in their mind. Do you mind if I ask you one more quick question? This is the last question from the audience. What are, uh, when you are in a situation that you know the other side is really trying to grind you down to get a better deal for themselves, how do you know it's time to walk away or keep going with them till you get the deal? So I'll give you an example, a, a live situation. So a client of ours was selling to Dell Computer and Dell Computer is notoriously very good at negotiations. They Today they make things, they actually manufacture components. They used to buy everything and just assemble. Now they actually make things and manufacture some of the components. But they 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 wouldn't let us build, a, they wouldn't let us verify the business case. It wasn't because they didn't want us, because they 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 thought it wasn't compelling. They knew it was compelling. They had done their own business case. So we completed the business case anyway, and they said they wanted to buy this solution for two hundred and fifty thousand. The sales price was one million two hundred and fifty thousand. <laughs> Big Delta. Well, we produced our business case anyway and presented it and said 
if yours isn't close to this, it should be because we've done this with this customer and this customer and this customer. And when we were done, they, they tried to grind this customer of ours down, but they sold that solution for a million bucks. I won't say it was easy. I won't say it was a short negotiation, but they got a million bucks. I have to tell you, I so enjoyed it. I could have spent another couple hours asking you questions here. Jeff, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us. And uh, I hope you'll write another book so I can have you back again. <laughs> We've got ebooks. Just go to zebrafy.com and there's ebooks there too. Like 2021 Guide to Remote Selling is there for free, for example. Well, please stay safe. Have a great rest of your weekend. Always a pleasure, Mark. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.